guys have a seat. Good afternoon. It's good to see you. Oh, sorry, I just overwhelmed in worshiping in that song, the lyrics of that song, which come right from Scripture. Um, I'm so thankful for our worship team. Um, I was uh, this past week talking with somebody about our church, and they had never visited, and they were asking, like, well, what's the worship like? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, you know, what style? And I said, well, kind of depends on what Sunday you come to. And, and they said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, if it's the first Sunday of the month, we take communion together every first Sunday, and a lot of times the band is off, and it's just a, a guitar and a couple of vocals as we you know, allow communion to be um, kind of the pinnacle of our worship experience together. But the very next Sunday, you could come in, and there's six or seven people on stage and full band. And, and they said, what, what, what kind of songs do you sing, like hymns or like contemporary songs? And I said, well, it depends on what Sunday you come, right? Because we're going to sing it all, because for us, it's not about a style of worship. It's about singing things that are true. And... Um, his words we just sang, um, though he slay me, yet I will worship, and he gives and takes away. Like, you know, for me, I remember vividly the first time, those words are from Job, by the way. Um, I remember the first time God comforted me and my wife, Hallie, with those very words. We were, it was 12 years ago, and it was the first time um, that, that we, my wife was pregnant, and uh, we were so excited. It was leading up to Christmas, and we had ordered onesies for the family to open, you know, the whole surprise thing at Christmas. And just two weeks before um, Christmas, uh, my wife Hallie miscarried. And, um, you know, and, you know, with all those other expectations of Christmas and all that, I mean, just at the heart of who I am, always wanting to be a dad, and like all that just kind of came crushing down. And it really started with my wife when she discovered that truth in Scripture. Um, the Lord gives and he takes away. And he's still good. And uh, God took that pain of that moment and turned it into worship for us. And, uh, and really, that's what we're going to be talking about uh, today, is hope in the midst of suffering. Um, and so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Uh, we were in Romans 5 and 6 last week. We're going to be in Romans 5 and 8 today uh, as we continue our sermon series. Um, as you're turning there, just a quick announcement for you. Um, I want to give you an update on some things happening behind the scenes. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't take very many visits to the campus to realize we're under construction. Um, we are, as you heard in the video, in the process of creating more worship space for more people in our community to come be a part of uh, the amazing work God is doing in our church and through our church. And um, you remember, though, when we started this journey, the first step of construction was a remodel. And so I'm so excited to let you know that um, construction of, on the remodel um, is going to be wrapping up this very week, uh, and then we're going to roll into cleanup phase, and then uh, uh, we're going to be calling for our final inspection. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a f couple things to address with the city there, and then our hope is that by the last Sunday in July to have an open house for you to kind of see it if you want to, walk through that area before or after services, and then it's going to be open for ministry on the first Sunday in August. And so we're so excited about that, but that's also the first step in that direction to build a new worship center. And uh, so simultaneously, we've been working behind the scenes with architects. Just this last Monday, uh, the elders met with our civil engineer and, uh, and kind of talked through our last little checklist of things to get figured out before we apply for replat. Replat's about a three to four month process. So all that's happening right now as we move forward. I want to give you that update and we'll continue to do so as we move forward so we're excited about 
um, not the buildings. We're excited about the, the families, the lives, the, the marriages that are going to be restored and, 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 and the addictions that are going to be broken and the lives that are going to be saved through using these buildings simply as tools to reach our community. And so uh, for, for so many reasons, we are grateful for that. All right, so we're in Romans chapter 5 this morning. We're talking about suffering. Um, a little, just a little uh, bit about my own journey with Christ. I became a Christian um, when I was 15 after my sophomore year in high school. And so I had 15 years of living, uh, seeing the world um, through a set of lenses that didn't involve Jesus or God or the church for the most part. Now, I'm not going to say I didn't believe that there wasn't a God or some higher being, but I didn't know him. And so once I became a Christian as a 15-year-old, stepping into a church service like what we just did was just a little bit awkward. The church people were weird, right? I mean, they sing about weird things, about you know, something about blood, and there's all this weird stuff, and then they talk about things that seem kind of upside down, like the greatest shall be the least, and the least shall be the greatest, and, and, uh, and that you, know, you want to give 10% of your, your tithes, your income, to the church, and that God will bless you, and they were just telling me all these things that seemed upside down uh, from the world I knew as a 15-year-old, right? Uh, you know, when do you sit down? When do you stand up? It's all kind of, you know, I don't, you don't want to be the last one to do either, right? So it took me a while to get my bearings on things, but as I grew in Christ and became more familiar with the Bible, things began to make sense to me, and what I realized is that Inside the church, the people of the, of, of the faith don't have things upside down. They actually have things right side up. It's the world outside the church that sees things upside down, right? So, for example, in the world around us, you will hear this question about suffering in God. Why do bad things happen to good people? You've heard it, and you may have even asked it, right? And that question uh, presumes some things, that question presumes that everything that happens in your life that you don't like is a bad thing. That's a presumption, right? We don't know that. It just, I'm assuming if I'm uncomfortable or if it's painful or not what I had planned, it's a bad thing. It also presumes or assumes the second thing, that I'm a good person. But what I found in the scriptures as I began to grow in Christ is that bad things don't happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. And that's the essence of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, even broken, sinful people like me, among whom I am the worst. And that is the heartbeat of our sermon series this summer, even sinners such as I. So how does that work? Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning, looking in a moment at this idea of suffering and how suffering produces good things in our life. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 and look at the first two verses to get started. Paul writes these words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in, the, in hope of the glory of God. Now, so far, Paul has basically gone over um, some pretty elementary truths about what it means to be a Christian. So he starts with this phrase, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What he means is this, 
that through your faith in Jesus, you have judicially been forgiven of your sins. Legally. All the the ramifications that come with mistakes you have made, it's all been taken care of. So it's not this idea of God as this cosmic Santa Claus or this really, really sweet, jolly old grandpa figure who just sweeps things under the rug or says, oh, don't worry about that. I know you didn't mean to. God says, no, I know you meant to. I know you meant to. Now, bring it into my presence that I may judicially, legally, officially wipe the slate clean and forgive you of your sins. So Paul is saying, since that is true, we've been justified through faith, then we have obtained two things. The first thing is this. We have obtained peace with God. Now, what he means by that is that before I trusted in Christ, I wasn't at peace with God. Matter of fact, I didn't want to be anywhere around God or his people. I certainly didn't want to be around both of them at the same time, right? So I didn't have peace with God. I was living with this this guilt and this inner turmoil and this wrestling with purpose and meaning and what do I do with my guilt and my shame? The last thing I wanted to do was to encounter a God who was gonna remind me of my unworthiness and all my failures. So I didn't have peace with God, right? I was in turmoil with God. I was walking away from God and stiff-arming God anytime he tried to get in my business. Well, Paul's saying, well, now through your faith in Jesus, you're, you're now at peace with God. You're not running from him, hiding from him, stiff-harming him. You're running to him, which leads to the second thing that we now have when he says, through him, we also have obtained access by faith. What he's saying is that now you and I, through our faith in Jesus, have access. Not only are we not running from God, we're running to him, and we always, even when you're not at church, have access into God's presence. Uh, The author of Hebrews does a great job of describing this in Hebrews 4.16 when he says, let us then, which is a phrase that means since this is true, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So now that I'm in Christ, I have peace with God. I'm no longer running from God, right? And when I make a mistake, when I sin, when I fail, I bring that mess to his throne room of grace. Hesitantly? No, confidently. Bringing that to him, saying, God, here's my mess. Here's my sin. Here's my brokenness, God. I need help. And so Paul is saying in verses one and two, Because you have trusted in Christ, you have these things. Peace with God and access into his presence. And then he lands with this phrase that makes sense. And we rejoice. We get excited. We celebrate. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I get that, right? We get excited. We celebrate. We rejoice And the fact that we have this. Now, I love that phrase, we we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because what Paul is describing there is that that you and I in Christ, we see God in part. We see a little bit of his glory and his goodness. In every day of your life as a Christian, you are more and more growing in your understanding of who he is. So for however thankful you are today... Tomorrow, as he expands your understanding of how good he is and how faithful he is and how much grace he's poured out, you'll love him even more, 
right? You follow me? So there's this, this ever-growing sense of God's glory. Now, what we read from the scriptures is that in this life, we will only know him in part. We're all longing for a day when we will step into his presence finally and fully beholding his glory as it fully is. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The little bit of it we see today and the whole lot of it we're going to see one day. Now, all of that makes sense to me. I'm good with that. But then Paul is going to say something, just, just can't quit. He's going to say something that catches me off guard when he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, that sounds upside down, doesn't it? That sounds backwards. Nowhere outside of the church and God's kingdom and being amongst God's people will that phrase ever make sense. Who rejoices in sufferings? And Paul says, listen, we rejoice, not just in what we've attained, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, the concept of you know, looking at sufferings and hardships in hindsight and seeing good that comes out of them, that's not a foreign concept, okay? Right, and I'll just give you some examples of how that works in just the secular world around us. Um, so when we think about, um, this, this week is 4th of July, this is the, the week that our country eats a lot of barbecue and blows things up, and, uh, and we celebrate, essentially, um, the, the end of the Revolutionary War, 1776, July 4th, when the colonies got together and declared um, their sovereign independence from Britain and declared themselves the United States of America. We celebrate that. Now, that didn't come to us without cost. Right? It cost men and women and even children their lives. A lot of sacrifice and suffering went into securing that independence. But we celebrate the independence because why? Something good came out of it. We attain something that we're all thankful for, so we celebrate that together. We're all going to do some version of that potentially this week. Now, put that up and against the Vietnam War. Men and women and even children gave their lives sacrificially for some cause, right? But the results were ambiguous. What did we gain? What actually happened? Did we win? Did we lose? What, what actually did we gain? And so we don't celebrate the Vietnam War, do we? Right? That's not on the calendar, celebrate the Vietnam War, even though the same sacrifice and suffering went into it. Why? Because of what we perceive we either attained or didn't attain. Okay, now that's a, that's a secular mindset. What Paul's about to say is, we rejoice in suffering because suffering produces some good stuff. That makes sense. Let's, let's follow this together. He's going to mention three things. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, the first two, I can get on board with pretty easy. It makes sense to me. Suffering produces endurance, okay? That applies to pretty much any realm of life, whether you're an endurance athlete, you're training to run a marathon. You'll never get in the shape you need to be in to complete the race unless you're willing to suffer. On some level, it's going to hurt, you're going to be thirsty, things are going to ache, you're going to feel like the wheels are coming off, then you're going to recover, and then you're going to do it again. And you're going to push the boundary a little further. You're going to push the boundary a little further, and through that suffering, you're going to build endurance. Okay? It applies to your role as a parent. I'm way more patient right now as a parent than I was on year one. When my first child was six months old and began to teethe. 
You know what I'm talking about, right? And there's nothing you can do to satisfy this little thing, squirmy, screaming, crying, uh, ball of just torment. And so, but parents, right, we, we don't just react to it. We choose to be patient. And through choosing to be patient, God builds up an endurance of patience that we're going to need later on down the road, right? When that six-month-old baby is 16 years old, right? And so we, we grow in our endurance and patience through walking through scenarios that require patience, right? So that makes sense. I get that we grow in endurance through suffering. And then he says, we also grow, or suffering produces, character. Now, this one, I think about it for a minute. I go, yeah, that makes sense. I can see where through my hardships in life, God has shaped my character, who I am, what I do and don't do, what I value and don't value. Um, I'll say this. I'm a way better husband than I was 14 years ago when we first started. Now, I'm not a great husband yet, but I'm better than I was. And, And what has happened as I look back is that most of the change in my life and my heart has been through the hard moments right, where we didn't have money, we didn't know how we were going to buy groceries or pay bills, Um, going through different brief moments of hardship. God shaped who I am as a husband, and so I can even begin to make sense of that. God produces character through suffering. That makes sense, doesn't it? Surely you can think about how God has done that in your life. But the thing that he says last baffles me. Suffering produces endurance, produces character, produces hope. Now, he's not saying that because we're Christians, we've got enough hope that we can just bulldoze through hard things. He's saying that in the midst of hard things, because you believe the gospel, because you've been justified, the hard things will actually produce hope, make you more hopeful than you previously were. Right? That ba- how does that work? How do you make me more hopeful when things get harder? And so... We'll now turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Now, Romans 5 and 8 are part of the same letter that Paul's writing to the same church. He's going to bring up the same topics again, so we know he has the same things on his mind as he's continuing to write to the church and talk to them about suffering and hope. Look at verse 18 with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay. So essentially, Paul is saying, your hope in the midst of suffering doesn't have anything to do with God fixing your suffering right now. It's something about the future that gives us hope. It's something about the future that empowers you in the midst of suffering. Now, I in no way want to present my life or my story before you as as someone who has suffered a whole lot. I really don't. Like, I think if I were to think through my life and recount the moments that I would call hard or suffering, you know, dad going to prison when I was five, being raised by a single mom, working multiple jobs, you know, all the things that I would go, you know, these were hard things I had to deal with. And if I put them on a list, I would presume that at least half of the room or more than half of the room, if you did the same thing, your list would probably be greater than mine, okay? That's what I would assume, that you have encountered more, more suffering. And so I am in no way um, an authority or an expert on how to endure suffering and what suffering looks like. 
However, the Apostle Paul, the one writing these words, is an expert in what it means to suffer. This is the guy who, early on in ministry, he's out on a missionary journey, going from town to town preaching the gospel, rolls into a town, gets in front of the people, proclaims the gospel. They don't respond with rejoicing. They respond with tackling him, binding him up, dragging him outside the city gates, and then they take boulders and rocks and throw them at him until they think he's dead. And then they dust their hands, they puff out their chest, they walk back into town. We took care of business. Who's next? Meanwhile, outside the city gates, the Apostle Paul's body is laying there lifeless. His, his band of brothers, his groupies gather around him and like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Paul's dead. What are we going to do? And all of a sudden, he just begins to come back to life. And so they dust him off and they begin to tend to his wounds. They help him up like, hey man, are you okay? And you know, hey, do you want to, we need to head home. Do you want to take a boat? You want to go by land? And Paul, what does Paul do? Excuse me, let's go back into town. It marches right back into town and begins to proclaim the gospel. This is one example of all the moments of suffering that Paul endured for the sake of the gospels. This guy, when he says, I've suffered, like, it means something. So when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Listen, he is in no way minimizing your suffering. He is in no way saying, suffering's no big deal. Suffering doesn't hurt. Suck it up and get over it. Matter of fact, we're going to see through this passage, he's going to say, suffering is a big deal. It's painful. It hurts. But what he is saying is that the suffering, however hard it is, however painful it is, it's not worth comparing to something that's better, something that's bigger, something that's greater. And he says, here's what it is. It's the glory that is to be revealed. And so as an expert on suffering, Paul begins to talk about how hope is produced out of our suffering. Now, the the thing he's going to do next, he's going to talk about how your suffering is not unique to just you. We all suffer in some way. And matter of fact, creation itself, because of the fallenness of our world, is suffering. Look at what he says next. This is verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's a strange thing. When he says creation, he's talking about the mountains, the sky, the birds, the grass, the sea, the desert. Creation is longing for something to happen, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He's talking forward right to that moment where you and I step into the presence of God fully and finally with redeemed bodies beholding God's glory. All of it. You finally reveal, this is my son, this is my daughter, that's my son, that's my daughter. When that happens, creation is going to feel the impact of that. He goes on to say, for the creation was subjected to futility or suffering, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So even at the fall, when creation becomes corrupt and bent and broken, it was broken uh, with a sense of one day God's going to fix this. 
And that's why when you step outside into the world that's broken and fallen, or you read um, some kind of a, a headline on a news website, or does anybody read newspapers anymore? A newspaper, right? It's no mystery that the world is broken. Something's wrong with it, and something needs to be fixed. Like, we don't need a better version of what we already have. We need something new, right? Just a, a fixer-upper of this world won't do because creation itself is broken, longing for a day when all things are made brand new. And so Paul is saying, listen, creation is groaning in the midst of suffering. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So ladies who've given birth, you that automatically brings some memories to mind. You remember giving birth and that groaning and crying that took place, right? The suffering that took place to bring something better about. And I, I know that you believe that because you went back and did it again, a lot of you, right? So whatever you gained from that was worth the suffering you went through. And he's comparing creation to that experience and saying, listen, um, with the groaning and the pains of childbirth, creation's groaning right now. Verse 23, but not only creation, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We're Christians. We know God. We know something better is coming, yet we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the same thing creation's waiting for, the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So right now, Paul said, listen, in the midst of suffering, there's a groaning that happens. Why groaning? Because suffering hurts. Suffering is painful. Paul is in no way saying, suck it up and get over it. That's no big deal. He's staring you right in the face saying, listen, suffering hurts. I know it hurts. Physically, if you've ever had a physical ailment or a chronic pain or some, some type of physical pain and anguish that you couldn't get relief from, you, you know that version of suffering. You groan. Something's not right with my body. Something's not right here. Emotional pain, right? From being betrayed, being let down, being gossiped about, whatever, being persecuted. There's an emotional pain that, is, that happens and is attached to suffering, and therefore we groan, right? There's a spiritual pain that can come with suffering. Where is God at? Has he abandoned me? Did I do something wrong? Can he even hear my prayers? Like Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is groaning as he's recounting the psalmist who said that, David. This feeling that God has forsaken me, God has forgotten me, God has abandoned me. That's just this feeling we get, right, in the midst of suffering. Paul calls all that groaning. It's a groaning saying something's not right here. Something better has to be on the way. He ends by saying, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And essentially what he's ending here is this. Do not look for hope in the momentary experience of your life. Your ultimate hope is not found. It will not be found in things simply getting better today. Because guess what? Today's pain 
if it goes away, will give way to tomorrow's pain. Right? So like the person who's suffering with cancer, radiation, chemo, which is basically a, a legal form of poisoning the body, very painful suffering experience, should that cancer be cured and that person go into remission, they can still get cancer again. Right? So hope is not contingent on simply having the cancer go away. The hope has to be bigger than that, beyond what happens tomorrow. And this is what Paul is saying. I don't consider the suffering of this present life, this day, this moment, this season, to be worth comparing to something better and bigger that is coming. The adoption, my adoption, your adoption, as sons and daughters into the kingdom, and the full revealing of God's glory. And so here's what Paul is saying, that if, if that's you and you're trusting in Christ in the midst of suffering, it actually produces hope. It causes you to look beyond this moment to something better that is coming, and your hope can actually grow and flourish in the midst of suffering and hardship. Amen. That's a, that's a baby version of amen. I'll take that. So, so as we think about suffering and how good can come out of suffering and how our hope in suffering isn't found in just this moment, this day, we've been reminded this morning of how our justification, this truth that we now have through our faith in Jesus, that, that we have peace with God and access into his presence, uh, our, our faith in Jesus has secured for us God's forgiveness and our eternal adoption as his sons and daughters. All of this gives us hope. Not in the circumstances of this life, but rather a hope that is forward-looking to the life to come. Suffering is painful. Some of you right now in this room are suffering. I know that. Not all of us. Some of you are like right now suffering. Almost all of us are just one person away. Like you know somebody you love deeply who is suffering in some form or fashion. Suffering is painful. Our hope is found in something beyond what happens to me today. True hope can only be found in an eternal end to pain and suffering. Done, forever done, right? Forever gone, forever healed, forever fixed. So we rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. We rejoice in our eternal adoption as God's children. But listen, church, and we also rejoice in our suffering. That's Paul's point. Get excited about all the stuff he said up front, but let's also rejoice in our suffering, knowing that our suffering is leading us somewhere better. And in the midst of suffering, believing the gospel produces hope. It makes hope grow and flourish. The same way it produces endurance, it produces character, it produces hope. I wanna, I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer and then I'm gonna, um, we're gonna listen to the a testimony, a story from one of our elders. Um, Daniel Henderson's gonna share a little bit of his story and how these truths have played out in his life. After we get done watching the video, um, our worship team is gonna be back on the stage um, ready to lead us in a time of response. And our prayer partners um, will be at the front and the back of the room. 
Um, if God has stirred something in you today, um, or maybe you just walked in going, that, I'm, that's where I am right now, our prayer partners would be honored just to pray over you and pray with you, okay? Just because we know that our ultimate hope is in eternity doesn't mean we don't pray, God heal this right now, right? We pray, we ask, we seek, we knock. It's just that our hope isn't contingent on whether or not it goes away. So maybe like there's something going on, you're like, hey, I just want you to pray over this or pray over this person or pray over me. That's what they're here for, okay? Um, second to that, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, like you have not come to the place in your personal journey through life where you have trusted in Christ and been justified before God. Listen, I w- I'm gonna ask that you make that decision today. Um, our prayer partners, again, will be down here and they would be honored to talk with you Um, answer any questions you have about what it means to become a Christian and even pray with you about making that decision. You don't have to have all the answers or even really all the questions figured out. You can just simply walk to one of our prayer partners and say, will you pray for me? Or you can say, how do I become a Christian? Or can you tell me more? And they'll take it from there. And so when we we stand to sing together, um, if that's you, I'm gonna encourage you to make your way to one of our prayer partners and let them pray with you. So let's pray together and then let's listen to Daniel's story. Um, Father, we do thank you that God, even in the midst of suffering, you are faithful, you are sovereign, and you are good. And God, nobody likes pain or suffering. But God, the, the hope we have is that suffering is never meaningless, it's never in vain, that God, you're always doing something with it. You're using it for our good. You're shaping our character, you're building endurance, and you're giving us hope. God, this morning, would you now move in this room, guide us and lead us to respond to the truths that we've heard from your word. God, we pray all this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hi, my name's Daniel Henderson. I've been a part of the Solid Rock family for nine years, and I've been acting in the role of elder for three years. When I think back of my salvation experience, I remember it was the summer camp of eighth grade. My uncle invited me uh, along with his church and I'd never gone to anything like this before. I just remember that I got the gospel and my eyes were opened for the first time in my life, even though I'd heard the gospel many times in my time in church. This is the first time I heard it and understood it and God awoke in my heart. And I, for the first time, saw myself, maybe through his eyes, I saw myself as a sinner that was wrecked and had no chance of ever earning my way into heaven. And then I saw God for who he was too, as that loving father that was always there for me. And the grace of Jesus just washed over me in a way that was exciting and life transforming. Uh, Many times I think back about that moment and um, whether it's in a sermon or driving down the road or anything like that, it just reminds me of I'm, I'm that same guy that's saved by grace. I didn't do a thing to earn God's favor, but he chose to love me anyways. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. Looking back on my life before I was a Christian, before that summer of eighth grade. Um, My parents were divorced at a young age 
And as much as I like to think it didn't affect me, it did. Um, I was in second grade and um, you know, you're asked, which parent do you want to live with? And, and having to make a choice like that in second grade is, is not easy. I don't even remember what allowed me to make that choice. Um, but I found myself, as I was going through life, um, trying to control things that were outside of my control. And, you know, enter eighth grade, where God opens my eyes to the truth of the gospel, that there is only one person in control, and it's not me. And I'm thankful for that. God's in control. So whatever comes my way, um, whatever happens, circumstance happens, uh, with my kids, with my family, am I going to be able to trust in God in those moments? Um, I think recently I've had some issues with my back. Um, for a good three months, I couldn't stand up for more than two or three minutes without severe nerve pain running down my leg. And so I would, I would sit wherever I was. I'd, I'd start a timer in my head for two or three minutes, run and do the thing, and then as the pain level shot up, I would then take a seat and do whatever. Well, while that's unfortunate, right, seems terrible, um, on one hand, and, and I think the control piece there was at, at work, this was affecting my, my work, my job. Um, things I was normally able to do without even thinking about, I now had to plan ahead or get somebody else to do it for me. Um, and just being in a place to where I had to say, I can't. Um, and, you know, that macho pride in me doesn't like saying, I can't. Um, at home life as well, you know, playing with the kids, trying to clean up and do my part in the home to help. Uh, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't help in the same way I was helping before. I couldn't play with the kids how I was helping before. Um, and even at church, um, there are many times where I wanted to use my physical strength to help out, whether it's carrying chairs, carrying furniture, um, just taking care of business, the, the things that have to go on to, to make church happen. I've always been happy to help, and, and on some level I identified as the guy that was always willing to help. And I feel like in this moment where you know, I had this back problem, you know, and you say, well, back problem is not a sin, and it's not, but God often chooses circumstances to reveal sin. And I could say, without a doubt, um, this was definitely true of my back problem. Just being able to rely on God for all things, just reminding me that He has given me the very breath to live, um, that He has enabled me to be able-bodied to begin with. And I think just showing me how other folks were suffering in ways that I was blind to. My eyes were open to the fact that you know, people that had chronic illnesses or uh, reoccurring things. I was praying for them in a way that I wasn't before. Um, paying, praying for them in a way that was knowing their pain, feeling it. And, uh, and I think that was helpful for me. And just coming back to the control piece, you know, I was even praying in those moments uh, for God to make it go away. And, you know, I definitely came to a place where I was saying, God, just show me what you want me to know here. Um, can you 
just open my eyes to what you're trying to show me, basically. And, and you know, even thinking forward, is this something I'm going to have for the rest of my life? And, and I still have it, even though it's gotten much better. Um, but when it does flare up, you know, um, I will often have that thought, even if it's fleeting, about, hey, I'm not in control of this, but I know who it is. And so if God chooses to allow me to be in pain or not move for, you know, be up for more than two or three minutes, and He's still God, He's still sovereign, He's still good, He's still loving, He's still able, He's still all those things that we know and love about.